Thank you for listening to We Have Ways of Making You Talk. Sign up to our Patreon to receive bonus content, live streams and our weekly newsletter with money off books and museum visits as well. Plus early access to all live show tickets. That's patreon.com slash we have ways. Hello, and welcome to this week's edition of Family Stories, the podcast written by you, our listeners. This week's stories take us from cricket in Australia to the skies over Nazi Germany, from life as an evacuee to setting fire to your own tank in front of Winston Churchill, plus the story of two women facing very different forms of occupation. We start this week, down under, with this story from Chris Langdon. Hi, Alan James. I really enjoy the podcast. It has provided many hours of enjoyable listening in the car and has cost me the odd Aussie dollar or two buying books that have been recommended along the way. I wanted to send my father's story, Flying Officer Walter Langdon, Royal Australian Air Force, to you. Dad was born in 1922 and grew up in Kalgoorlie in the Western Australian goldfields, about 600 kilometres east of Perth. At school, he was a keen sportsman and a good cricketer for Kalgoorlie. Once he completed his schooling, he travelled to Perth to train as a schoolteacher. But in September 1941, he joined the CMF, a local militia force that at that time was intended only to be deployed for the defence of Australia and New Guinea, not for other overseas deployments. He was initially assigned as a driver to Petrol Company, and then in January 1942 he was transferred to No. 5 Motor Ambulance Convoy. In March 1942, he earned his first stripe with a promotion to Lance Corporal, and this was followed four months later with a promotion to Corporal. In January 1943, he applied to join the RAAF as aircrew. I remember him saying that he thought service in the army was going to involve a lot of walking, and he wasn't too keen on that idea. As he was not 21 at the time, he needed his parents' permission to apply for aircrew. This was given reluctantly, I gather, and thus his army career ended. His early RAAF training took place in South Australia as part of the Empire Air Training Scheme, flying in Avro Anson and Ferry Battle Aircraft. From there, he travelled to Brisbane, embarking on the Matsonia headed for San Francisco. A cross-country train journey then took him to New York. During this train trip across the US, a brief stop in Lincoln, Nebraska, saw him and his mates asked by locals at the station if they spoke English. The locals had not seen the dark RAAF uniforms before, and they were not sure where the airmen were from. At the end of the rail trip, he arrived in New York, where he had a week's leave. From there, he sailed to England on the Queen Mary, sharing a cabin with 20 other men, a cabin that was originally designed to take two people. After arriving in the UK in February 1944, he went to Aircrew Officers School in Hereford, then on to West Frew in Scotland for his navigator training. A couple of very understated entries appear in his diary during this period. Nearly had a mid-air collision last night. Would hate to put down just how close it was. Another entry simply states, A crew went in today. Even before ops started, training was claiming lives. In September, he was posted to 2-9 OTU in Bruntingthorpe. Here, the crewing up process took place for later operations. 
Seven days were allowed for this process to be completed. After meeting up with the bomb aimer, Jack from Melbourne, they went in search of their pilot. They decided on an old guy, as Dad once described him, Ted from South Australia. Ted was 27 and had a wife and young daughter back at home. Dad and Jack decided that Ted would be keen on getting home and unlikely to want to do anything stupid. The crew eventually ended up with four RAAF and three RAF personnel. During his time at Bruntingthorpe, Dad met an English girl, Mary White, at a local dance. They continued to see each other over the following months as his training and leave schedule allowed. At the end of December 1944, the crew went to 1654 Heavy Conversion Unit for their Lancaster training. Then in March 1945, they were assigned to 460 Squadron, RAAF, based at Binbrook, Lincolnshire. Their first operational trip took them to Nuremberg on the night of the 16th of March. Two nights later, they were part of a force that attacked Hanau. Dad's diary note mentions that his aircraft was attacked by night fighters five times on this trip. None of the crew were injured, and there was no mention of the aircraft being damaged. The 460 Squadron Operational Record Book mentions that the offensive spirit of gunners probably paid dividends. Further ops during March and April took the crew to Hamburg, Kiel, Potsdam, Lutzkendorf, Heligoland and Bremen. The Bremen mission was abandoned by the master bomber due to the target being badly obscured by cloud. The squadron record shows all bombs were returned to base. I can't imagine the crew would have been too keen on landing with a full bomb load on board. The last bombing operation for 460 Squadron took place on Anzac Day, April 25th, 1945, a daylight trip to Berchtesgaden. The Bomber Command War Diary shows that 16 Lancasters from 617 Squadron also participated in this raid, using the last of their tall boys. Dad's diary entry says, Saw Lake Constance in the Alps. Scenery was beautiful. Being able to see something out of the window must have been a bit of a novelty after all the night trips. At the end of that operation, all the members of Dad's crew signed the navigation chart that Dad had used on the day. We still have that chart, along with his navigator's logbook. Dad's crew flew four more trips, one in the first week of May as part of Operation Manor to drop food supplies to Dutch civilians outside Rotterdam, and then three trips to Brussels to bring home POWs. The last of these POW trips was on the 11th of May 1945. Through his Royal Australian Air Force service, Dad accumulated 370 hours flying time, 310 hours in training and 65 on ops. He returned to Australia at the end of 1945 and Mary joined him there a few months later. They were married in August 1946 in Kalgoorlie. Dad went back to continue his teaching career and to playing cricket. He made his debut for Western Australia in the 1947-48 Sheffield Shield season and captained the team in the 1952-53 season. He went on to work as coach and a selector for the Western Australia team. He was the only player from WA to be selected to play in Don Bradman's testimonial game at the Melbourne Cricket Ground in 1948. As children growing up, we went with Mum and Dad every year to the Anzac Day Parade in Perth. Dad never marched with the 460 Squadron, but he always acknowledged his friends as they went past. Dad remained in contact with Jack and Ted, but as much as they tried to convince Dad over the years to attend squadron reunions, they never succeeded. Dad didn't talk much about what he did during the war. We didn't even know his diary existed until after Mum passed away in 2008. Dad had died four years earlier, aged 82.
I've attached a copy of the signed navigation chart from the 25th of April 1945 for you to have a look at, and also for James, as I know he is a bit of a cricket tragic, a photo of the Bradman testimonial teams from 1948. Keep up the great work on the pod. Regards, Chris Langdon. Next up is this story from Graham King. Hi guys, I've been particularly enjoying the Family Stories episodes while I've been binging the podcast over the last few months and thought I'd share the experiences of my paternal grandparents. They were children during the war and I think children's stories are often overlooked. Children have a way of making the best of a situation but the war must have been very hard on them all. My grandparents were evacuated from London early in the conflict. Gran went to West Kingsdown in Kent and Grandad to Dulo in Somerset. Gran vividly recalled watching German bombers stream fly in during the Blitz, dogfights during the Battle of Britain, and the waves of British and American bombers heading out to Europe later in the war. Her parents also moved to West Kingsdown to escape the bombing, though, curiously, Gran went to school in Catford throughout the war, travelling through South London's shattered streets. In Somerset, Grandad lived on a farm next door to a jam factory. All he saw go into the factory was sugar, food colouring, turnips and wood chippings. Never an ounce of fruit, or so he said. Later in the war he went to grammar school in Horsham, Sussex, where he unknowingly witnessed the build-up of British and American troops ahead of D-Day. The soldiers were in camps opposite each other on the main road. Enterprising young lads that they were, he and his school friends made pocket money by buying cigarettes and chocolate from the Americans, and selling them to the British for a huge profit, at least huge to a 13-year-old. One morning they woke to find the camps empty. It was only much later that day that news of the D-Day landing started to come in. In August 1944, Grandad went back to the family home in East Dulwich, South London, for the summer holiday. His stepfather ran a shop on Lordship Lane, and they lived on the two floors above. In the afternoon of the 5th, he was taking his parents some tea when a V-1 exploded in the back garden. The house was in a terrace row. Theirs was the only one in the row still standing, supported by the floor-to-ceiling shelves and wardrobes. The chair downstairs that Grandad had been sat in just minutes before was flattened by falling masonry. The family dog, who took his place, didn't survive. According to reports, it was one of the biggest V-1 blasts to date. It was one of the first of a new generation with a bigger warhead. Twenty-three people died in the blast, including as many as twenty who were queuing at the bus stop, and were crushed as the concrete lintel that ran along the top of Grandad's row fell onto the street. I'm sure Grandad saw things a 13-year-old should never see. There was a lighter side to tragedy, though. Three days later, they found a neighbour's chicken under some rubble. It was alive, but completely featherless. They ate well that evening. Grandad went on to do his national service as a stores clerk at RAF Hednesford in 1948-49. He didn't see a single aeroplane in two years. A few years later, he met Gran and they got married in 1952. They were very happy together. Grandad died in 2009 and Gran in 2016. They were great grandparents. Thanks for reading, Graham King. I'm Anthony Scaramucci, former White House Director of Communications and Wall Street financier. And I'm Katty Kay, US Special Correspondent for BBC Studios. I've been covering American politics for almost three decades. Welcome to The Rest is Politics US, brought to you by Goalhanger. 
Go on, tell us, were those donations you made, like Obama in 2008, was that idealism? Were you hoping to get something out of these campaigns that would serve your own business interests, for example? So I think this will either make this podcast incredibly successful, Caddy, or people <laughs> will be horrified and they'll shut it off right now because I'm going to be very real with you. The Obama donation, I had gone to law school with President Obama. We were not classmates. I was a few years ahead of him. It was 2007. He was then Senator Obama. I had a check in my breast pocket. I went over to the senator. I said, Senator, I said, you and I didn't really know each other in law school, but I'm about to hand you a big check. Can I lie to my friends and tell them that you and I knew each other in law school? <laughs> well, Obama looks at me, had the best smile in American politics since Jack Kennedy. Forever. Yeah. He lights up. He looks at me and says, I'll tell you what, if you double the amount of the check, we'll take it back to Hawaii. Okay. And I looked at him. I said, you're done. I had another check in my pocket. I ripped it up. I doubled the amount of the check. And I'm going to tell you right now, I've been to more White House Christmas parties during the Obama administration than the Trump administration. In this pivotal year for the United States, democracy and world affairs, Britain's biggest podcast, The Rest is Politics, is launching stateside. Uncovering secrets from inside the Biden and Trump inner circles and how they shape the world's most important economy, but also the global economy too. New episodes are released every Friday morning. Just search The Rest is Politics US wherever you get your podcasts. This next story has been sent in by Simon Taylor. Hi guys, loving the podcast and loving being part of the We Have Ways community. I've tried to write down some anecdotes my grandfather gave me. He told me these when I was young, but I never wrote them down then. I was too young to know. My granddad, Leslie Taylor, was a hero to me, and it is a great regret that we have no permanent record of his time in the 8th Army. As a family, we have a few old photographs of Grandad's time in the army as part of the 6th Royal Tank Regiment. I've inherited his medals and I still have the actual box they came in from the war office. Leslie was conscripted in late 1941 and fought in the desert and in Italy before eventually ending up in Austria. He was quite an old recruit in that he already had a family and a son. When I once asked him about volunteering, he immediately made it clear he had not volunteered. He'd been called up. He had a family and didn't want to go to war. Before sailing in December from Liverpool, family legend has it that Grandad, Grandma and my dad, aged three, went to have tea at the Adelphi Hotel. But when they got there, it was full of officers. There was no room at their inn. Outside the hotel, they were discussing what to do when they were approached by a local Liverpudlian. Either he had heard the conversation or inquired as to what was wrong, and upon finding out, he gave Grandad and Grandma his mother's address and told them to go there for tea. It transpired he was one of the chefs at the Adelphi. When they got there, the chef's family took them in and they had a full roast lamb dinner, something of a rarity in 1941. In the desert, the 6th Royal Tank Regiment put on some exercises in front of Churchill. Grandad, at this time, was the driver of a Grant tank. One of his extra jobs was to stow all the bedding. It being very cold at night in the desert, he would always stow his bedroll close to the exhaust pipes to ensure he had a warm bed for the night. On this occasion, as they performed in front of Churchill, he had put his bedding too close to the exhaust port and managed to set his bedding and the tank alight. This was not the only time he would set fire to his own tank. 
He was a member of B Squadron, 6RTR, and was part of Montgomery's bodyguard of tanks during the Battle of El Alamein. So I'm not sure how much action he saw in that battle. There is a photograph of him on leaving Cairo with bandages on his arms. Once I asked if they were wounds. He said no and explained they were always getting small knocks and cuts while driving the tanks. Because they were in the desert, these cuts were always getting infected and quite often they had bandaged arms. The regiment eventually ended up in Iraq, where King Faisal II was given the honour of looking into my grandfather's tank. There was a picture in the Daily Mail of my granddad in the background as King Faisal was being introduced to the generals, and then another photograph of my grandfather lifting the young king into the tank. When we used to look at these pictures, my grandmother always said, with great solemnity about the young king, they, she meant the Iraqis, killed him, they cut him up into little pieces. Eventually, Grandad's unit went over to Italy and they appear to have fought up the eastern side of the country. Being used to fighting in the desert, the troopers never had the task of cleaning out the drainage ports of the tanks from around the turrets and elsewhere. Now, in Italy, and equipped with Sherman tanks, it rained, and with winter arriving pretty soon, the mud, dirt and debris in the drainage holes froze. This froze the turret solid and prevented it traversing. Having tried salt and various other methods of clearing out the holes, Grandad resorted to using petrol, to try and defrost the turret. This was the second occasion he set light to his tank. Thankfully, he managed to extinguish the fire, but I believe he was panicking at one point because he thought he had destroyed the whole tank. I know he saw various pieces of action during the Italy campaign. His best friend lost his leg and died of that wound. He witnessed this happening. Apparently, Sam, his best friend, was driving his tank when it lost a track and he had to get out to repair it while under fire. Sam was hit and lost his leg. He died the next day. Leslie ended his service in the army in Austria before coming home. Our family history says Grandad was late getting home, and so my father was allowed to get out of his best clothes he was going to greet his father in and go and play. He met Grandad in the street, who introduced himself with the words, Hello, son. I'm your dad. But Grandad was dressed in his demob suit, so my father replied, You're not my dad. My dad's a soldier, and promptly cycled off to play. One of the best weekends away I had was visiting the Tank Museum at Bovington at the age of 12 with Grandad. If only I'd been a little older and been able to ask deeper questions about his time in the army and kept a record of it. Keep up the good work and many thanks. Warm regards, Simon Taylor. Our final story this week comes from Michael Weston. Gentlemen, first of all, thank you for the excellent podcast. It's so my bag. This is a family vignette about two young girls living in occupied Europe, both born in the late 1930s and both still going strong, my mother and my mother-in-law. When they first met, 30-odd years ago now, they discussed their experiences of being occupied during the war years. My mother was born in Jersey and lived there under the German occupation. Much has been written about the life of the islanders, the deprivations and the effects of being cut off from family and friends. Meanwhile, my mother-in-law's occupation was by the British, as she was from Klagenfurt in Austria. Her father was conscripted into the Wehrmacht later in the war. He was then in his forties, leaving his wife and nine children. Their initial occupation was by the Americans. As the American army advanced, my grandmother-in-law was approached by a neighbour. The conversation went along the following lines. Don't worry, Mrs. D, the neighbour said. I know your husband is away, and I want you to know that in his place I am here to help and will ensure that everything will be all right. That's very kind, she replied. 
What do you have in mind? Well, the Americans are almost here, and before they arrive, I want you to be comforted that I will take care of you and your children personally. I will come round and shoot you all myself. She declined, but shortly after that, the neighbour shot his young children, his wife and himself, to avoid occupation by the Americans. It speaks volumes about the strength of propaganda, even that late in the war. Best wishes, Michael Weston. That's all for this episode of Family Stories. Thanks for listening. If you've got a family story you'd like to be considered for the show, please email it to wehavewayspodcast at gmail.com. Wehavewayspodcast at gmail.com. Or leave it on the members site under the Family Stories tab. A reminder, that's patreon.com slash wehaveways. Thanks for listening. Bye for now. <laughs>